0: Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearedCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates, and our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Cast, the Security Clearance Careers podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and today I am delighted to have Tasha Jones, president and owner of 2039 on the podcast, to discuss all things national security from her time serving in the military to the transition, getting a federal job, working as a contractor, and now being her own girl boss running her own company and doing some side hustles along the way. So many clearance jobs, job seekers run into issues after the military like experiencing failed USA job applications. But Pasha decided to take destiny into her own hands as an entrepreneur. Small businesses are my bread and butter and that's the only kind of entity that I supported as a contractor. So you're in good company with me. We connected because you were on a podcast with our dear friends, Megan and Katie over at Iron Butterfly Media. And so I'm just, I'm really pumped that you're taking the time to chat with me today. So how are things going? Any exciting things for you on the
1: horizon? as we kick off 2024. Hello, hello. And things are going amazing. Like I'm really excited about this year. The energy is great. I swear I must have hit the lottery with my network because I have some amazing connections that have been looking out for me. And we put a lot of work in last year too. So I think that has something to do with this year kicking off as, as well as it has been. So all I have is good things to say about the beginning of the year. Uh, which is actually a, a changing tide.
0: That's yeah, so good to hear. Mine's been a little bumpy, not necessarily professionally, but personally. I mean, this weather is totally kicking my butt. It's neither here nor there. So let's kind of go back to the very beginning of your entrance into this industry. A big portion of the CJ ecosystem includes active duty, those transitioning and veterans. So tell us
1: about your call to service and initially joining the Navy. So I joined the Navy right out of high school. It wasn't necessarily the plan, but it's what happened. (laughs) And I don't regret it. I had a Navy ROTC recruiter, of course, at the school that actually took a lot of extra time to explain to me things to think about with regarding how I entered into the service. You know, I evaluated several different opportunities. I scored well enough on the ASVAB uh, where I had a few good choices and I ended up designating as an intelligence analyst. At the time, of course, I had no real understanding of what that meant. I just thought it was cool (laughs) to be an intelligence. And I really did enjoy like history, research, analysis and things like that. So uh, to me, that was kind of how I ended up picking the military and and going ahead and moving forward with enlisting.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, it's out of high school. I mean, you just think back to that time, or at least I do like, oh, my gosh, how young, you know, we're going to talk about that journey that you took and kind of how that positioned you for where you are today. So you were a spook conducting intelligence operations. There's some of my favorite secret squirrels, because those are the kinds of contracts that I supported in industry, but you were also a military spouse. So tell us about, the difficulty of balancing those things.
1: Correct. So out of high school, into the military as an enlisted member, you know, I finished A school, got sent over, you know, to Europe, to Molesworth. And that was my first and only tour because right after I got accepted into at the time it was called Boost, I also was transitioning within my relationship, my personal life, from being girlfriend to wife and We both agreed, you know, we didn't want to have both of us in the military. And then the complications that come with not only dual military, but I would have been an officer, him in in the enlisted ranks in the seashore rotation. He was at Airedale. You know, I was Intel. We, you know, probably wouldn't have been able to see each other. And so I decided to get out and he stayed in. The other deciding factor, he he was over the 10 year mark. So I was in my first rotation and he was. Halfway through to retirement, and so I went ahead and got out. It was definitely a culture shock transitioning from active duty to being um, a dependent, a military spouse. I filled that shock with a job. <laughs> I filled it with a job. So, you know, we had our first child and ended up we we got stationed in, in San Diego. He was at Coronado and I took a job at Northrop Grumman out there. The balance was fairly easy because I was active duty, like him doing what he had to do. I kind of just rolled with it because I understood what it was about and what I had signed up for. I was the primary caretaker for the kids. He went to work, he came home. You know, we shared duties and responsibilities as long as he wasn't out to sea. And then when he was gone, you know, I ran the roost. I took care of the house and took care of the kids and, and did what I did. And I had a very strong support system. I think anybody that's a military spouse that engages with the community knows what I'm talking about. I had several friends and other spouses that, male and female, who had kids, and we helped each other out when when our partners were out to sea and deployed. And you know, it was uh, our family away from family basically because we didn't live in an area where we had our personal families with us. We were always away. He's from Michigan and I'm from Florida, so uh, everywhere we've pretty much been, we've we've been kind of By ourselves without our external family or our nuclear family. It was, I think, the culture shock of not being active duty and then going to the medical and them calling me by, you know, wanting my spouse's social and, (laughs) you know, me remembering not to salute when I'm in civilian clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Like just doing it was just weird for a little bit, but slowly I fell into the the groove of things. And then I was a contractor as well. The job I took, I was a contractor. So I was still associated with the Navy, but just on the contractor side, the mannerisms and the, the environment and the culture was still very familiar from what I was um, used to. Sure. Lots
0: of transitions. And I hope it's kind of therapeutic to talk about it. And it's not like, wow, that was crazy and hard and difficult. I mean, obviously, being a parent in general, like there are so many great, fantastic moments. But there's also those moments like, I'm going to pull my hair out. And being a military spouse and not having family, I mean, that's that's all really difficult. Everyone I speak to has kind of a different quote unquote, military transition, different things that made it difficult, maybe some misconceptions as they neared their out day. And so following your transition, I know that you had some difficulty gaining federal employment, which is another common theme I hear. So tell us about how you transitioned from a contractor to the agencies that you supported.
1: I also had trouble because when I first got out, like immediately I was trying to go through USA jobs. And it was crazy because I was applying to Intel positions like (laughs) that I was just doing. And I, it crickets and I followed the rules. I went to the training, you know, I did everything you're supposed to do. And I couldn't even get an interview, let alone, you know, (laughs) a position. And so that's one of the reasons why I kind of just transitioned or started focusing more on industry on the contractor side. There was a a period that happened. So I wasn't government, a federal civil servant until I had been working over a decade as a contractor. So it took a while, right? Also, I, I kind of, wasn't too anxious to transition over to the federal side once I kind of got established as a contractor because they paid differential. I had moved up the rank fairly well on the contractor side in industry, and the pay you know trying to negotiate to stay at where I was or do a little bit better transitioning to government you know it's a thing, <laughs> so it took a minute, but I happened to be in AFSIA on the emerging professionals and Intelligence Committee epic as an epic is it it's a subcommittee under the intel committee and one of the men one of my mentors dean hall who was at the time the deputy cio for bureau was talking to me about like my growth career growth plans and things and long story short he recruited me to bureau and he was like you know it'll be a great opportunity for you and the timing was perfect because It was either I was going to try to be a federal civil servant then, or I wasn't going to ever be a federal civil servant because my salary was at that point where it it would have been difficult to take the pay cut unless I was going in at a more senior level on the government side. That transition for me, it was fairly natural just because of the way it happened. And so there were several positions um, that were open. And at this time... um, I had developed other skill sets, right? So I started in the military as an intelligence analyst. However, you know, back in the day, intel analysts used to publish a lot of their intelligence reports to websites, right? So we had to, we learned a little bit of HTML and we learned just like doing data transition, some technical skill sets. And over that, that decade before I became a civil servant, I picked up additional skills, you know, with Northrop Grumman, I was doing configuration management. I was doing scripting for testing. And, you know, I had done some, my un, my undergraduate uh, was in development. So I had done a bit of coding. I'd done some, you know, web development, the .NET, you know, <laughs> language. And I was a part of some rapid prototyping teams. And so the testing tools and things like that. I had also acquired my PMP and so had done some project management. And so I picked up all these different skills. And so when I went to the bureau, I wasn't actually doing intelligence. I went in as a, what they call a 2210, an IT project manager. And so that transition was a little bit different because they appreciated that I had the intelligence background and the experience there, but was also technical. And so when they brought me in, it was intended that I help support um, because at the time, the Bureau was fairly newer to the intelligence community, right? And so I was brought in to help with the intelligence technical programs. Because I was somewhat recruited in, the process of getting in wasn't as difficult because I had a contact. And I've found that for government roles, that seems to be the secret sauce is knowing someone.
0: Well, especially if you're hearing crickets after submitting, you know, those applications. And I I mean, that's why creating and massaging your professional network is so important. And just from hearing your story, you really need to take your job search into your own hands and recognize that just time passed doesn't mean that you are going to get that promotion. I mean, you were constantly upskilling and professional development and gaining that PMP. I think those are some really important things that can create a positive outcome for folks' sort of career journey. So let's talk about some of those positives that you can look back on in supporting the intelligence community and maybe what's been your most rewarding memory.
1: I would say the positives were... While I was in the, on the Intel side, like directly working as an analyst, those were some of the most fun times for me, just because it was all of the skill sets that I actually enjoy doing. Cause you know, everybody, every job has stuff you don't really, (laughs) you don't really enjoy doing, but I enjoyed the research. I enjoyed the analysis. I enjoyed, you know, evaluating like. The data and figuring out how to categorize everything and what tools could help me to develop my networks and my timelines and all of the things that you have to do in that role. I enjoyed briefing. I enjoyed, you know, developing the products and contributing to, you know, warfighters being more informed and protected um, in the missions that they were doing. I enjoyed uh, making an impact and providing the decision makers. Information where I've taken into account different perspectives that probably weren't considered previously or before. And I I really enjoyed all those things. That independent thought and that goes into like being an analyst as well, I think also helped shape me and prepare me for entrepreneurship because it's very it's very lonely. Is that the right word? <laughs> <laughs> you don't
0: have anybody to vent to or share, you know, yeah. your losses I,
1: with, right? Yeah. And I, I don't know if it, if lonely is the right word, but it almost, I guess isolate, it feels kind of isolating, even though there's hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs and business owners and things of that nature, and there's groups and all the good things, right? But when you're in it and it's your business, it can be isolating, especially when you're trying to figure out like just how to ramp up and business is about revenue. So getting that initial traction and, that, and, and stabilizing that. And then when you pivot or have to pivot, figuring out what is the best way to do that, considering the constraints and environment that you're in and all the conditions that exist at the time that you're making those decisions, anticipating all of the various uh, potential risks, whether it's competitors, whether it's politics, whether it's weather. <laughs> like there's so many things that you have to take into account. I do feel that, you know, being in the intelligence space and having the roles that I was able to have the experience in and grow, kind of mature my skills, mature my thought processes and who I am as a person, um, good, bad, or indifferent all, you know, set me up to be able to, I think, whether being an entrepreneur.
0: Well said. So any misconceptions you can share about working for the government since you've supported the mission in a number of ways and You know, specifically about making moves to national security hubs outside of locations where there weren't any Intel work because I have so many conversations with folks, you know, depending on the location that they're in. Have you heard of any intelligence work out here? Anything well nowadays, hybrid, remote, and you know, so anything
1: that you can bust there? I would just say it's all about mindset and being open. I know that probably sounds like a cop out, but it's true. We were in the DC metro area, well, close enough to it to where I could take advantage of that, of that region for work prior to going to San Diego. There's not as much (laughs) intel, like not the type of intel that I did anyway on that in that area, like on that coast, right? And so, you know, I had to transition. I had to adjust. And fortunately I had other like as other skill sets and things of that nature. But I still leveraged the knowledge I had because I had always been an in intel from that point. I still leveraged my understanding of the intelligence space to try to navigate into the in-between where I was on the technical side of the fence, but still supporting intelligence systems. So I think it's being open to the opportunities that present themselves for the spaces that you're in. And so it's all about mindset. And I think one of my most traumatic memories was um, when I was at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I was supposed to transition from green to blue. And it didn't happen because of the security portion of the investigation. It was determined I was not suitable And it was the result of um, a short sale we ended up having on our house in Florida. And this is at the time when like, There was a housing bust and everything. And we did our due diligence when we bought. We didn't overbuy or anything like that. It's just the market was so bad. We needed to move for for new jobs. And the home's value was more than 60% below what we purchased it for. And so the market would not hold. We only had the house for a couple of years. And so uh, we did everything. We documented everything. I'm well aware of you know, being financially sound as a person in the intelligence community. And I even shared all the information, but still was penalized and had always had good credit score, always paid my bills kind of thing. And um, it really was traumatizing. And I had turned down all my other jobs because I just knew I was, you know, transitioning. I was transitioning from a contractor into Gavi, into the same part of the organization where I was. No one would talk to me. No one would tell me what was going on, I had to do a FOIA request to even to get the information about why. And it was the short sale. My husband also lost a job because of the same thing at that time. And again, like I said, we all, you know, no, no other types of issues or anything. And we documented. And when we short sold, there was no like payback for the bank loan. So it wasn't even our credit score bounced back in, in a year and we were good and i thought like my life was over from a career perspective cuz i had always worked in the intelligence community right and so the thought of not being able to be cleared i'm like man how do i navigate that <laughs> and so that was the that was another really pivotal moment for me though because after i Stop being afraid. I got angry and I said, you know, I never want anybody to have that kind of control and authority over how I see myself and my potential career options. That is when I actually went after my project management professional, my PMP certification, because it was industry agnostic and it allowed me to leverage a lot of the same skill sets that I used as an intelligence analyst. And so um, I stopped, you know, pining over the potential loss of that and kept moving forward and sure enough like you know i still was cleared of course at the time i didn't know that and i thought like when when i was being recruited for the bureau i thought it would be an issue and i disclosed everything and told them all the things and they were like yeah that's not that's not an issue <laughs> and they and they brought me in so you know it wasn't the end of the world even though at the time it felt like it and in hindsight i am so thankful that that did happen because my trajectory would have been very different and I have a love hate relationship with the (laughs) diac. So, uh, (laughs) so I, you know, I, I do appreciate the, the path that I was able to take and I would not have expanded my repertoire of skills and, and network, even the executive positions I was able to have access to, that was because of the path, the alternative path, right? And so I, I truly appreciate, even though it was a traumatic experience, going through that and would drop a notice to anyone that may be experiencing that, that it's not the end of the world and there are options and there's life after something like that.
0: I I wouldn't even try to speculate the stat there, but you know, there's a portion of our listeners who have definitely experienced that. I know that security clearance policy and the suitability criteria is something that we talk about a lot at clearance jobs. And from a recruiting perspective, like for example, when I was staffing for a DHS contract, I mean, notably their suitability criteria, even for current security clearance holders, is a lot of people aren't going to get through the door. And so, you know, your traumatic experience, I'm so glad you look at it in a positive light. And I'm sure that others, you know, who are experiencing that now perhaps would definitely appreciate the words of positivity. And so, you know, you became a consultant and let's talk about the difficulties prior to now owning your own business of navigating the subcontracting relationships, you know, as a billable employee and, you know, also trying to, you know, go after new work. Like, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: I had done my rounds after I left the FBI as a federal employee. I was an executive with a company called Triple I, which... Uh, was acquired by Salient. And I think Salient has been acquired by GovCIO or something like that. And so I was like, you know, I think I want to do my own thing. And I, but I wasn't sure. And so I had an associate at the time who had a small business who I saw myself in because she was a lot younger and went to work with her just to have the experience of being in a very small business because I had mostly been in larger firms like SEIC and Northrop. That was my first exposure to a very small company. And I got, you know, a lot of visibility into like the difference right of course obviously everyone there's no place for no one to hide like you everybody's effort is compounded because you only have so many people and what that experience taught me is that i i didn't want to start my company off as a traditional small business but as a consultant and Fortunately, once my time was finished with that company, I had made a good impression on the, the government POC for the contract we had in, in the prime program manager and was offered a, a 1099 role, which allowed for me to transition out into my own thing, which was great because I didn't want employees. I had no intent of growing like a business at the time. I just needed kind of a break from being an executive and then. You know, being in a small company, but trying to help it grow. And then the health issues that had came. I loved everything that I was doing, but the people part is I think in anybody that's been an executive or been in a very senior position that care about their people the way that I do, it can't it as rewarding as it is, it's draining as well. I appreciated like being able to just be on my focus on myself, have the opportunity to, you know, choose work that excited me for myself. It was a nice change. Very scary because that was the first time where everything was on me. I wasn't under a company, right? But it was difficult trying to plan, like follow on opportunities because GovCon isn't really set up to consider the one person company, like the independent, it's very much based off of networking relationships and in your reputation for how you deliver, right? You have to definitely plan well in advance that transition, depending on, you know, the period of performance for the contract, the subcontract that you have when you're a 1099. You have to think about that well in advance so that you have a decent transition into your next opportunity.
0: Well, we've hit almost every sort of type of capacity that you can support national security. So now you own your own company and you're hoping to grow and it sounds like 2024 is already going well. So tell us a little bit more about your capabilities, the industries, the clients and kind of what you hope to create with
1: 2039. Yeah, so we are a very small company. Last year was kind of year one in putting some infrastructure in place to scale the business. We put a lot of work in and we're a large team of a (laughs) Mighty few. So we're four and growing. We have B2B services and past performance with DIA as well as HUD as a subcontracting with other firms. Our core competencies are around transformation support services, project management, and technology management consulting. And we, our focus is simplifying complexity and processes so decision makers can make smarter decisions and in operations can flow more smoothly, more effectively, efficiently. It's been fun because a lot of the capabilities that we have were born out of some of the B two B support that we do for other small businesses. We don't, we're not a BD or capture shop. We help other smalls implement the technology and the the processes to have a a whole system for their business development process going after government contracts and that involves helping them right set or level set their strategy, understanding like what is their current tech stack and how are they currently doing the various tasks, which there are many, to go after government contracts? And where are the gaps with that? Because we have to be, with the way that acquisitions have shifted in the government contracting space, in order to be uh, successful as a small, you have to be lean. You have to be able to deliver, but you have to do all the parts. You can't just deliver. You still have to you know, go to networking events. You have to introduce yourself to different agencies, hone in and tighten up your competencies you have to be compliant you have to manage that process of identifying qualifying doing capture proposing on opportunities responding to rfis it's a whole lot of stuff you have to do with very little people and limited funding and so the best way to do that is by having efficient processes and Streamlining and automating where you possibly can, so that you can handle all the things and juggle all those balls uh, simultaneously within the confines of the resources that you have available to you, and that's what we provide. So this year, our goal—we we have two prime contracts uh, on the state side of the house, and uh, we're trying to build our footprint on the federal side by subcontracting with some amazing partners who we've developed relationships with and um, grow our footprint with our current prime prime organizations on the state side of the house and increase um, our help to the B2B side as well. We're trying to make sure we get at least 30 new companies in our portfolio this year, helping them build out their operations and even maybe an ANC, an Alaska Native um, corporation or tribal organization that may have several smalls, that may be a little bit disorganized. We wanna make sure you're meeting those portfolio goals. We have a, a potential client right now that we're getting ready to propose to on helping them with their operations. So a lot of good things on the horizon for us. And the last thing I would say is that we're also trying to host a couple of events this year and giving back to the small business GovCon community through training and our podcast. Um, and so we're going to try to do a live podcast for our Unveil GovCon Stories podcast, where we highlight the stories of small businesses in the space, the reality of it, good, bad, or indifferent. And we also want to do kind of like a, hopefully a reverse industry day. So we're, we're in the process of the planning for that. And look forward to kicking it off later this year.
0: I love it all. And so we'll be sure to link to y'all's podcast. If you're a small business looking for some help, 2039 and Tasha Jones can likely help you out. And if you're a large business looking to partner, I wouldn't hesitate to reach out as well. And so I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of Cleared Cast. So 2039 weaves logic, strategy, and data into people, processes, and technology to enable organizations to monetize underutilized assets. So to learn more about 2039, you can visit 2039.com. That's T-W-E-N-T-Y, the number three, the number nine.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Clearcast. Hit the subscribe button and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. For more security clearance updates and national security career advice, subscribe to news.clearancejobs.com. If you have an active clearance, refresh your profile and search Cleared Careers at clearancejobs.com.